Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. You're listening to the Sham Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Thank you. 
Psalm 98. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly shown in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands, that the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he cometh to judge the earth. With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. 
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Good morning once again. This is your Sunday, your early Sunday morning gospel program, Morning Inspirations. It's now time for our morning prayer. Good morning, Texas. Glad that you can join us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being our Father, our Lord, and our Savior. We come before you this morning to say thank you. Thank you for giving us life, Thank you for giving us one more day. Lord, we thank you for keeping us throughout tonight. And Lord, if there's anything, let me there's if there's anything that we've done knowingly or unknowingly, forgive us, O oh Lord. We repent in the name of Jesus. Now, Father. We lift up those, Lord, who's in hospital, who's in hospitals and hospice, and hospice care. Those, Lord, who are in nursing homes. We lift up those, Lord, who are behind prison walls. We lift up those, Lord, who are who are homeless. Those, Lord, we, we lift up those persons who lost a loved one. This week, Lord, we lift up those, Lord, who are indeed physically, mentally, spiritually. Lord, we, we, we lift up the ones, Lord, who, who has Alzheimer's and those, Lord, who has uh, dementia. Lord, we lift up those, Lord. Those we lift up our children to you, Lord. It's summertime, Lord. School is out. And Lord, we asking you, Lord, to look after them. And Lord, we lift, we lift up those Lord, who are who are looking for work. Those who are working. Lord, we lift up those, Lord, who, who have businesses, your own businesses, Lord. We lift them up to you as well, Lord. We lift up those, Lord, who are going to listen to the minister this morning, preaching the word. Give them power to preach your word. Not to them, but to you, Lord. Lord, we thank you. We lift up our leaders to you, Lord. The president, vice president, to the cabinet, to the Senate, Congress. We lift up our state leaders, 
Now, city leaders, now county leaders, lift up those who are listening to us live by way of Just to show you, we try to do your will, Lord. And we thank you. Bless my wonderful wife, Lord. Bless her, Lord. Touch her. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be back at the top of the hour. I believe that Christ's command that we serve the poor is reason enough to struggle on behalf of those without enough to eat. But there's another powerful reason to extend the fight against hunger and extreme poverty. Very simply, we know great progress can be made, and this should inspire us to increase our efforts. That's President Jimmy Carter, and today he brings you a powerful message as the capstone to our series on faith and global hunger. I'm Peter Wallace. This is Day One. Welcome to Day One, the weekly program that brings you outstanding preachers from America's mainline Protestant churches, sharing insight and inspiration from God's Word for your life. marks our 65th year of inspiring weekly broadcasts. Now, here's our host, Peter Wallace, to introduce today's very special speaker. Thank you, Sherry. We are indeed honored today to bring you this special capstone to our Faith and Global Hunger series in support of the Millennium Development Goals. This past June and July, we presented messages from four church leaders speaking on God's call to serve the poor and hungry around the world. Hodding Carter, Barbara Lundblad, David Beckman, and Bishop Michael Curry informed and inspired us to take action. Today we are privileged to have with us President Jimmy Carter, who is celebrated internationally for his humanitarian efforts and who has been vocal about the importance of faith and its impetus to serve the poor. A former governor of Georgia, he served as the nation's 39th president from 1977 to 1981. In 1982, he founded the Carter Center in Atlanta to wage peace, fight disease, and build hope. And in 2002, he received the Nobel Peace Prize. The author of two dozen books, President Carter is also recognized for his service as Sunday school teacher at the Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia. His message today is entitled, A Joyful Resolve, Transforming the Lives of the World's Poorest. And now from the Carter Center in Atlanta, President Jimmy Carter. As a Christian, I'm happy to discuss my faith in relation to the great challenge of global hunger. I believe that Christ's command that we serve the poor is reason enough to struggle on behalf of those without enough to eat. But there's another powerful reason to extend the fight against hunger and extreme poverty. Very simply, we know great progress can be made, and this should inspire us to increase our efforts. I was nurtured as a Southern Baptist, and I have taught Bible lessons throughout my life including today at Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, where my wife and I are both deacons. Yet I long have believed that equally devout Christians could pursue different worship and organizational customs and still practice our faith in harmony. All people of faith who take the Bible seriously, both the New Testament and the Hebrew text, very much agree that God's heart is with the poor and 
the vulnerable. Jesus proclaimed at the beginnings of his earthly ministry that he had come to bring good news to the poor. The Bible includes several thousand verses on the poor and on God's response to injustice. We Christians are acquainted, of course, with the familiar biblical parables, the outcast Lazarus, destitute and longing for crumbs from the rich man's table, and covered with sores, who is nonetheless embraced in the bosom of Abraham. That's in Luke 16, 19-31. In the four Gospels, we are reminded five times how Jesus fed the hungry crowd with loaves and fish. And from Matthew, we receive an essential lesson from the Day of Judgment. Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, Jesus said, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. God calls to all of us, rich and poor alike. Recognizing the suffering of the poor and the encumbrances of wealth, Jesus has said, Come unto me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will refresh you. In the Old Testament, in five short sentences from Isaiah, carefully joined together, God speaks to all. And I quote again, I have chosen you. I have called you by name. You are precious in my sight. You are mine. I love you. In these and other ways, the Bible reveals how central the demand for justice for the poor and the oppressed is to the very nature of God. When Jesus himself observed that the poor will always be among us, it was not to excuse indifference to the poor, but to emphasize that our faith finds its full meaning only in the unceasing commitment to justice. We live in a world of nearly 7 billion people. More than 2 billion of them are Christians the greatest number of them living in the global south. Thus, in sprawling slums and isolated rural villages, one finds tens of millions of Christians among the world's poorest people. I point this out because although every person is a child of God, sometimes we Christians with rich blessings forget that the struggle to help the world's poor also is an effort to improve the lives of our fellow Christians. They number among the most vulnerable who suffer from hunger, disease, and illiteracy. They're among the one billion who go to bed hungry each night and who lack access to safe water. They, too, are denied the necessities and opportunities essential to shape productive, dignified lives. But we must not confuse God's demand for justice with a simple call to charity. Tangible factions by individuals and global commitments by nations are required to ensure justice and human rights for the least advantaged among us. And these commitments can reap results. Ten years ago, leaders of 189 countries met at the United Nations to sign the Millennium Declaration, an unprecedented global agreement to take concrete steps to lift human beings above the abject dehumanizing conditions of extreme poverty and strengthen the foundations for development of all people by securing rights to education, food, and access to health care, among other basics. From that grew the Millennium Development Goals, or MDGs, as they are known, including the important goal to have hunger by 2015. Since these goals were set, we have reduced a portion of the developing world's population 
living in extreme poverty, those often burdened by hunger and malnutrition, from about half in 1990 to about one quarter today. Even in Africa, where the threat of food insecurity may be the most persistent, people have shown that when they are empowered with the right tools and knowledge, they can dramatically transform their own lives. More than 24 years ago, through the Carter Center, I began working with the late Dr. Norman Bullock on improving agriculture in 15 sub-Saharan African countries. At the time, famine ravaged the continent, and we focused on connecting local agronomists with farmers so that scientific advances could be brought to the fields more readily. Farming techniques could be improved, and post-harvest practices could extend the reach of food. The end result has been more than 8 million small-scale farmers, all of whom live in countries at risk for famine or malnutrition, have doubled or even tripled their crop yields. This is just one example of how some of the world's poorest people, with a comparatively small amount of help from their wealthy neighbors, are getting a better chance at meeting their most basic human needs and realizing their true potential. The Millennium Development Goals target poverty, hunger, and disease, while encouraging universal primary education and fairness for women and girls. They are backed by global consensus and have the strong support of all the world's major religious groups. Some have referred to the Millennium Development Goals as a Marshall Plan for the world's poor. Just as the Marshall Plan restored hope and opportunity to a war-shattered Europe after World War II, Today, the MDGs offer the same hope and opportunity to the least among us. The MDG program is achieving strong results. The effort rests on knowledge we already possess. It relies on proven, effective implementation strategies. In these ways, the goals represent a sharp break from failed development approaches of the past. You may ask, how can I help? How can I join my passion and energy with this amazing work. One effective step you can take is express your support of the Millennium Development Goals in a short letter to your member of Congress. A special day one website, hunger.dayone.org, includes a sample letter and many resources. You might also wish to visit the website of organizations including In Poverty 2015 or Bread for the World or the Micro Challenge. Share what you learned with family and friends. In 2002, when I accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, I ended my address with these words, and I quote, the bond of common humanity is stronger than the divisiveness of our fears and prejudices. God gives us the capacity for choice. We can choose to alleviate suffering. We can choose to work together for peace. We can make these changes, and we must, end quote. When we confront the scale of human need and know that we have the tools to make a difference, our obligation to do justice is all the more clear. We should feel a joyful resolve to press ahead. I have never been more optimistic about our ability to lift up our brothers and sisters and to change the world at long last. Now, President Jimmy Carter talks with our host, Peter Wallace, about his life, his faith, and the lessons he's learned about helping the world's poor. Mr. President, how has your faith motivated your life of public service 
both as a politician and as a humanitarian? Well, I don't really see any incompatibility between the principles of a democratic nation based on freedom and human rights and my own Christian faith. Uh, I think the teachings of Christ, although they can't be applied directly in government, are basically the same principles that I followed when I took the oath of office to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States. So there's no incompatibility. Uh, Christ is the Prince of Peace. And when I was president, I elevated keeping the peace to a top priority. And I think the uh, principle of justice and the principle of honoring the rights of uh, everyone equally and alleviating the plight of the poor and the disadvantaged and the suffering. All of those are principles of our nation and also principles of, uh, of my faith. You and Mrs. Carter have traveled to more than 120 countries, including many of the very poorest. What key lessons have you learned in relation to successful global development? Well, it's not an accident that the countries that we've visited have been most of those where the people are poor and neglected and destitute and suffering or in need, because that's where we target our efforts at the Carter Center. And what I've learned, I think, more than I had ever known while I was in public office is the fact that the poorest of people whom we tend to underestimate are just as intelligent and just as hardworking and just as ambitious and have family values just as good as mine. And if they're given a chance to improve their own lot in life, they respond with enthusiasm and with great effectiveness. So I think the basic thing is, to summarize, that we, we underestimate the people that are already suffering and don't realize that if we just give them a chance, they can overcome the causes of their suffering as much as possible on their own initiative, just with a little help from outside. And what explains the very positive impacts of current development strategies in contrast to those of past generations? One of the main attractive features of a new effort is that it's a global commitment. Uh, almost every nation on earth joined together in establishing the Millennium Development Goals. And this means that there's a concerted effort now with as much harmony as possible among the so-called donor groups uh, and a better understanding of a, a genuine plight of the poorest people who are suffering, and uh, that we can more wisely uh, provide the limited financial and other resources that we give to them uh, in an effective way. Sometimes as individuals, we feel uncertain as to how to get involved in major undertakings, such as the Carter Center's global health efforts and the Millennium Development Goals. How can an average person help truly make a difference? Well, one way, obviously, is for us to contact our political leaders and just encourage them to elevate the, uh, the alleviation of suffering around the world to a higher position of importance than would ordinarily be considered. That's one way. Another one is in our own local communities to find ways to devote our resources, financial resources, and our time to alleviating the plight of the poor in almost every community of a major nature in America, for instance, the Habitat for Humanity project going on. We can help for a few hours or maybe for a few days each year just building a home for in partnership with poor people. Another one is to find some organization in, who, in which you have confidence. The Carter Center would be just one of, of many. Uh, 
like World Hunger or Catholic Relief Society or CARE or the Red Cross even, and uh, even either devote time or give a financial contribution uh, to those organizations that are already in existence, and they've proven that they are effective and that they use a, a financial contribution to a major degree of passing on the benefits of that contribution and not just for internal organizational costs. So uh, in all these ways, I think that uh, average American or any, any other country can do tangible things. It just requires a willingness to devote our own time personally and our own financial resources to help others. You mentioned writing a letter to your member of Congress. When you were president and governor, what impact did the communication of your constituents have on you? Uh, when I was in public office, the messages that I got from my constituents were a major uh, consideration in my decision-making process. Uh, sometimes when there was a crisis when I was president, I might get thirty or 40,000 letters or messages or just in one day on a matter of interest. And my staff would, would categorize the letters pro or con a particular decision I had to make. And I would pay close attention if there was a heavy uh, dominance of uh, one side or the other. I would say the most effective letters, though, were, were the ones that didn't come from any outside influence, like a prepared letter, but were handwritten letters, for instance, that came from a human being who had a, a heartfelt interest in a particular subject that I might have uh, inadvertently overlooked as a matter of importance. And to get three or four of those letters, say, from diverse people in the, in the United States on, concerning an unaddressed or previously ignored subject would focus the attention of a president of the United States or a governor of a state on that. And, and quite often, I would give a lot of attention to, say, collective letters from a group of students uh, in a high school or college or university. Uh, it's not easy for 20 or 30 students on a campus to get together and, and say, I'm going to write the president of the United States, and these are the uh, matters concerning, say, higher education that are very important to me. So I paid particular attention to those kinds of, uh, of uh, messages that came to me. So we can make a difference. Every person can make a difference, particularly in a democracy like ours. Mr. President, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now here's our host, Peter Wallace, with some final words about our Faith in Global Hunger series. President Jimmy Carter's stirring message today brings our day one Faith in Global Hunger series to a close but the work is just beginning, and you can help. First, let's review some highlights of this series. Noted statesman, journalist, and educator Hotting Carter first presented the scope of the problem and how the Millennium Development Goals are addressing the need. Ours is a world of extraordinary abundance conjoined with abject poverty. It is an abundance of such magnitude that it could easily feed all those who share Earth's air and water and land. On this, there is no real argument. The responsibility for making good on the goals for ending poverty and hunger rests with governments, legally speaking. The real responsibility is ours, however, arising from the answer to all the familiar questions. Who is my neighbor? Am I my neighbor's keeper? Then in her message on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the Reverend Dr. Barbara K. Lundblad exhorted us to heed the biblical call to serve the poor. Jesus didn't tell this parable to scare the hell out of us. 
Jesus told this parable to change the way we are living this side of heaven. We're feasting sumptuously, and Lazarus is still hungry. Of course, there isn't only one man named Lazarus. There are millions of men, women, and children who long for even a crumb that falls from our tables. Many of them are far beyond our gates or our front doors. We will never even know their names. In part three, the Reverend Dr. David Beckman, president of Bread for the World, shared specific ways to address the problem. All the nations of the world have agreed on what are called the Millennium Development Goals. These are specific targets to reduce hunger, poverty, and disease. And we've made some headway. Between 1990 and 2015, it's quite possible that the world will cut poverty in half. I've come to see this as a great exodus in our time. It's like the biblical exodus, but on an even larger scale, a much larger scale. This is God moving in our time. And in part four, Bishop Michael Curry issued a call to action. Participation by people of faith in the work to abolish poverty and hunger through the accomplishment of the Millennium Development Goals is doing precisely that. It is witness. Witness to the gospel. This is not a utopian fantasy or a vain hope. For if the nations of the world, religious communities, and peoples of the earth of goodwill would truly commit to using 0.7% of our financial resources to support international development, the numbers of people suffering because of hunger, poverty, disease, gender inequalities, and inequities in education and access to needed human resources, those numbers could be drastically reduced to the point that poverty itself would be on the endangered species list. Poverty, as U2's Bono often says, could become history. So, ten years after the Millennium Declaration, significant progress has been made toward the realization of the Millennium Development Goals. Later this month, UN member nations convened to assess progress and accelerate achievement at the high-level MDG Review Summit. In view of global economic pressures, there's an even more urgent need to act now to encourage full funding of the MDG program. Here's how you can help. First, call or write your member of Congress and the White House to express your support of the Millennium Development Goal. As President Carter said, your personal communication can make a difference. Next, get your church involved in the Stand Up and Take Action movement involving a broad array of faith groups and churches. For information, visit endpoverty2015.org. Also, be sure to visit our special website at hunger.dayone.org for resources on the Millennium Development Goals and related action steps. You'll find a sample letter to Congress, links, and other materials to help you and your church as you explore the issues of faith, global hunger, and the MDGs. Finally, make this a matter of personal prayer and action. With two billion people in need, may God give us minds to think, hearts to love, and hands to serve with the compassion of Christ. Our speaker today was the 39th President of the United States, Jimmy Carter. His message in the Faith and Global Hunger series is entitled, A Joyful Resolve, Transforming the Lives of the World's Poorest. 
For a free transcript, call us toll-free at 1-888-411-DAY1 or write Day1, 644 West Peachtree Street, Suite 300, Atlanta, Georgia, 30308. To listen again to today's program or watch our video presentation featuring President Carter, visit us online at day1.org. And remember, Day One depends on the financial gifts of faithful listeners like you. Thank you for your support. I'm Sherry Miller. Next week, we're delighted to have with us the Reverend Tom Brackett, Missioner for Church Planting and Ministry Redevelopment for the Episcopal Church Center. His sermon is entitled, Jesus the Rogue Rabbi. Please be sure to join us. Everybody. 
That means you too, sleepyhead.
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Have you ever wondered why you do the good things you do? Hi, this is Jonathan Falwell. And you know, serving God is a wonderful thing, and it should be an outpouring of our love for Him and for His children. But it's awfully easy sometimes to get absorbed in our own emotional needs and forget our true purpose in getting involved in helping, in volunteering. When you serve God and are doing great things for God, I hope and pray that you aren't doing them because you want to be somebody or that you want to fit in, but rather you are doing them because you want to be closer to God, that you are closer to the power of God in your life, and it's a natural outflow of that closeness that makes you want to serve Him. You see, God is not so much interested in our service as He is interested in our hearts. We've got to refocus the heart. We have to make sure that our heart is in the right place when it comes to serving God. He's saying to regulate your life. Figure out what that means for you so that you can walk in the Spirit. You need to understand what it means to walk in the power of God so that you can have all that God intends for you. The things that we do for God and our outward activities will never allow us to fulfill our mission unless our heart is truly fixed on Him. As Christians, we are called to be many things, but the most important thing is to be called a child of God. One-on-one with Pastor Jonathan. To receive his daily audio devotional free by email each day, visit Falwell.com. Noah's Ark, it's a picture of salvation. Answers with Ken Ham, whose ministry is building a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati, Ohio. Have you ever thought about the fact that Noah's Ark is actually a picture of Jesus Christ? Let me explain. The Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, I believe he would have actually stood at the door of the ark and preached a message, perhaps something like this. There's a flood coming. God's going to judge this world. Believe God's warning and come on board. There's plenty of room for you. Obey God and be saved from the judgment to come. You know, sadly, only Noah's family went on board. Now, here's how Noah's ark is a picture of salvation in Christ. Think about it. When Jesus was on earth as a man, he said, I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, they will be saved. You see, Jesus is our ark of salvation. And just as in Noah's day, God's word warns us a judgment is coming, we need to go through a doorway to be saved. Are you in the ark of salvation? One of our more popular resources is a 95-page pocket guide on Noah's Ark. We'll send you a copy for a donation of any size. As we close out the broadcast week, call us toll-free at 1-888-89-ANSWERS and we'll mail you the guide for your donation of any amount. 24 hours a day, call us at 1-888-89-ANSWERS or get this pocket guide on the Ark by going through our website of AnswersOffer.org. This is Anne Graham Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. What seemingly impossible task has God given you to do? Have you done it, or are you procrastinating? What if Noah had procrastinated and told God he would build the ark, but at a time when he felt more capable, or when his financial situation was more stable, or when his family was more self-sufficient, or when it was just more convenient? If Noah had the attitude many of us do when God gives us an assignment beyond our ability, He would have been totally unprepared for the horrifying devastation when it struck, and we wouldn't be here today to talk about it. Instead of procrastinating, Noah obeyed without question or hesitation. Genesis 6.22 says that he did everything just as God commanded him. Listen to me. What is your impossible task? Obey God. 
just as he has commanded. You'll be glad you did. This is Anne Graham Lotz. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Thank you. 
at about 6,000 years. He also defended the six-day creation. Although Newton did not personally accept the doctrine of the Trinity, he did take on the atheists of his day, offering strong defenses for the biblical view of history. He was one of the first creation scientists to suggest that most of the sedimentary rocks of the earth are the result of the Genesis flood. Next time you hear someone say that science and the Bible don't mix, just think of Sir Isaac Newton. For a printed transcript of today's program, visit our website at creationmoments.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-42-BIBLE. That's 1-800-422-4253. And be sure to join us next time for another Creation Moment, proclaiming evidence of God's truth.
Angela Early. Sunday morning gospel program, morning inspirations. Tonight on Nation Talk, the fight for hunger and poverty in the U.S. and abroad. Also, has free speech in America uh, is in trouble. Plus, we have a new feature, Blank on Blank, and a hail and farewell to Greg Allman. Of course, your phone calls. That's Nature Talk tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Talk to You and Jam Radio. Here come the Paper Boys again.
formerly of Shalimar, and the late Ali Woodson, formerly of The Temptations. Heaven help us all. Good morning to you and yours. Yes, early Sunday morning gospel program.
Get a free article by Patrick Morley about lifestyle repentance, along with other resources for spiritual growth, including the free app from GoTandem that helps you stay in the Word of God each day. Go to mimradio.org. I don't want to live 
in rebellion to you anymore. I ask you to forgive me. And tonight I open my heart and I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I believe, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved.
for Nation Talk. Of course, we'll see you at a church near you. God bless you. Have a wonderful and blessed Sunday.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.